Live from the slightly twisted deck bar, it's the Poogee Podcast with Justin Lamine. The Poogee Podcast is proudly sponsored by Cimarron Golf Club, located in Jacksonville, Florida, off County Road 210, just west of St. John's Parkway. Excited to have our next guest join the show, um, works up in New York uh, as an equipment manager um, for one of the professional sports leagues, so I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that, but some really cool stories um, that I'm sure he's excited to share with you all, uh, just some interactions maybe with players, uh, fans, things like that. So uh, without further ado, I want to welcome on Joe Cuomo, uh, the equipment manager for the Brooklyn Nets. Justin, happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for being here for sure, taking some uh, some time to do this. Uh, I know uh, I'm sure you're still busy trying to keep things in order up there through this downtime, but uh, how's everything been with you and, and your role, I guess, around this whole coronavirus uh, downtime that's happening within the league? Well, we're, I think we're in unprecedented times, Justin. Um, you know, it's kind of bizarre. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in our lifetime. So, um, you know, obviously – I, I like to think that my job is like a 24-7 type job. So, you know, just kind of uh, adapting to the current situation has, you know, been a challenge for me. So kind of I, my biggest challenge has been balancing the needs of our team, but also, you know, practicing social distancing, healthy habits, you know, so that way we could eliminate this virus. So. Yeah, and what was it like, I guess, uh, the day that the news kind of broke that the NBA would be – uh, kind of halting their uh, processes for the time being. What was that like on your end, I guess, from the uh, the frontline standpoint of working, you know, hand-in-hand hand with the players, how you mentioned, and, uh, you know, some of the staff and everything? Well, it was really interesting because we were on a, uh, a long road trip uh, on the West Coast, and we knew that going into it, um, into our game in San Francisco against the Warriors, that we were going to play in, in front of no fans. So they were the first ones to come out and say, no fans. Um, but this was before the news broke about the Jazz and OKC game where a player tested positive. So um, we knew that this virus was ramping up. We were kind of in the loop with what was going on, but um, we were prepared to play in front of no fans. We got to San Francisco. Um, I helped unload the luggage truck like, like I normally do at the hotel. Then there was nothing going on at the arena that day, fortunately. So what I like to do is I usually like to go right over to the arena and you know, unload all the equipment and start setting up the locker room. When I tell you, as soon as I got done setting up the locker room, I looked at my phone and I got an alert saying NBA season postponed. And I was like, whoa. So this became real. I, immediately I started, I'm walking around the bowels of the new Chase Center and I'm on the phone on a conference call. We're going to try to get out you know, next day back to New York. So we're in the middle of a, of a long West Coast trip. So Never played the game, went back to the arena the next morning, took everything down and, um, you know, loaded up to go back to New York. So, But I know also on that same note, all the teams are taking the necessary precautions to make sure they are doing their very best to keep, for lack of a better term, their employees healthy, um, whether it's the players or the uh, coaches, staff, front office, whoever it is. So uh, we're definitely excited to get back to sports here soon. Uh, but a little bit more about your role. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit about the travel out to the West Coast, but kind of take me through maybe what it's like being an equipment manager in the NBA. Um, is, it a, is it like a fraternity style or all of you guys pretty close? And, and maybe some of your day-to-day -day responsibilities as far as getting the uniforms and the players ready for the game. Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely like a fraternity. Um, you know, we're 
uh, each team, you know, has one of 30 in the world, right. Who do, who have this role. Uh, so we're very close knit. We rely on each other incredibly during our se- season travel. So uh, it doesn't get done without the help of the host equipment manager. Um, so day to day, I mean, you obviously probably have the preconceived like notions of what an equipment manager does, laundry, ordering, outfitting, uh, but it goes way beyond that. The position really has evolved. Being one of the more um, tenured members of my organization, as well as many of my counterparts with their organizations, you know, we, and being, having to be organized all the time, we know, have a, we have a pretty good sense of, you know, what to do and what not to do and what flows smoothly and what doesn't. So, a natural extension of equipment management has been travel logistics. So a lot of, you see a lot more equipment managers becoming uh, director of team ops and overseeing the travel um, that, you know, that could encompass the buses, the uh, air charters, the food, uh, scheduling practices on the road, you know, with different venues, um, what, what, you know, working with the ho- hand in hand with the hotels on what, you know, what the rooming lists are going to be like. So, and there's always last minute changes. So, kind of constantly got to be ready and, um, you know, three steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. You mentioned that because, uh, you know, obviously the title of equipment manager, um, you think it's strictly going to come down to the equipment, the shoes, the uniforms, things like that. But, uh, thanks for kind of going into some of those other responsibilities that some people might not necessarily know actually happen. Um, as fans, I know a lot of people show up for the games and don't necessarily know what actually goes into, preparation um the preparation is is much longer than the actual game itself so uh it's cool that you get to kind of be a part of that and get to have this unique responsibility what um what got you into being an equipment manager how did that kind of uh come to be for you uh post-college was this your first job take me through that a little bit so uh as a young freshman i think it was my first semester at ucf um i was in a general business class and a lot of it, the time dedicated, it was a once a week night class. And a lot of the time dedicated was bringing in different concentrations from the school of business. And one of them was sport management, uh, sports business management. And at the time it was still kind of in its infancy. It was kind of like just been rolled out by uh, the DeVos program, uh, which at the time was only a master's program, but they were trying to come out with a minor. And I was kind of interested in that. And we, everyone in the classroom was encouraged to, you know, to apply for uh, enrolling classes the following year and went and did that. Come to find out like two weeks before the classes were about to start that I was dropped out of those classes. There wasn't enough interest, which was kind of puzzling because you would think that, you know, there's probably a lot of interest in coupling sports with business. So the following year, now that's my junior year, it comes back. I registered for the classes. Unfortunately, this time I wasn't, you know, kicked out of them. There was enough people in the class to make it going, but we were really tasked with the challenge of, you know, spreading the word about it. And fortunately, we we did a good job. We we used the opportunities that were afforded to our program, um, you know, through internships and volunteer opportunities to kind of build the brand and get like exposure at the, uh, you know, within our university and. Uh, it's, you know, grown to what it is today, over 300, I believe, maybe possibly even more different concentrations are, are starting to, you know, adapt to it, um, to the, to the, to the interest of sports business. Um, so, you know, I use my internships, first of them being with the Washington Nationals, just kind of, you know, it was a very general in- internship, 
did everything from stadium operations to ticket sales to marketing and picking up players. It was just a very broad spring training internship. Come back the following season as the box office manager and then stay on as an ops assistant for the minor league season. Um, so that was about a 45-minute drive. Fortunately, you know, now I'm in my junior, senior year at UCF, and a lot of the classes are online. I, I could watch them at, at my own leisure at night after work. So it really was a good balance, and UCF really afforded me those opportunities to, to not only intern, but to also you know, work during the day and do my education at night. So I was very fortunate for that, being so close to the Washington National Spring Training Complex. So still didn't really have an exact focus of what I wanted to do. Like obviously operations, everyone wants, it seems like everyone wants to work in operations, but you know, from my experience, you really, like, I would say about 75 percent if not more of those jobs go to former athletes so you really kind of got to find your niche and you know use the skills and knowledge of what you have and have a good self-awareness of what you're good at what you're not good at to um to, you know to find what your what your role is and what you're suited for so still looking for that next opportunity but i knew i had to um intern more you know it wasn't the type of person who were like i knew somebody that worked at a high level with an organization who was going to get me a job or an opportunity somewhere. So I kind of had to just find my opportunities and kind of create my own luck. So moved to New Jersey, enrolled in grad school at Seton Hall. Once again, used those connections to get internship experience and kind of just find my niche, build experience and, you know, develop skills and just have better self-awareness of myself. Did a full year uh, in their PR department shirt and tie every day, no matter if it was 30 degrees outside or 90 degrees outside. You had some days where it was like extra inning, rain delay, you know, having to turn go home at 2 a.m., turn around, you know, wake up at 7 a.m. It was, it was a grind. It, it, it was probably the, it really kind of set the tone for like my expectations of working in sports. Like, because baseball is such an, it's such a, it, it's its own animal as a sport, you know, 162 games a year. It's, it's so intense. So it really kind of laid the foundation for me. Then I came to another crossroads in my career where I'm like, the kind of the, they were, the Mets were involved, you know, the owners were apparently involved with Bernie Madoff and uh, that whole Ponzi scheme. They were family friends. So the government went after them for relief uh, for victims. They settled at like 300 million. This was probably 11 months into my tenure with the, the Mets. And once they settled on that figure, the whole organization started restructuring, and I knew that my days were probably limited. Like I was part-time, so I didn't know, even if I did stay on, my growth was really halted. So I must have applied for something in, um, the, with, in marketing with the then New Jersey Nets. They were in the middle of a lockout the NBA season, so um, it was, everything was in a state of flux. But I did get a call from, from an HR representative who saw my resume and asked me if I was interested in doing an unpaid uh, basketball ops internship. Growing up, basketball was pro probably my favorite sport to play, even though my passion was baseball. And I always thought I was going to work in baseball. But the commute was a lot shorter. And, you know, like I said, my growth with the Mets was severely halted. I was com commuting probably about three hours a day. Uh, at the time. So I said, you know, this might be good. And I know this team is, that has plans to move to Brooklyn. There could be a, a potential opportunity. So one thing that we always learned in the minor from doc was, you know, you take the interview no matter what. 
And um, so, of course, took the interview and I was blown away, really. Like, it was a very great working environment, very, very different from my previous two internships. And they let me know within like a day or two that they wanted me to come on as soon as the lockout was over. So they were very upfront and transparent. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. So went to work immediately in January and, um, you know, didn't really, it was kind of like very more similar to my first internship with the nationals. It was very general. Um, but it was in basketball operations. It was a lot of grunt work. It was a lot of, you know, stock and fridges, you know, um, doing laundry, rebounding during practice, but then after practice going upstairs, changing into business casual attire and helping out as an, like an admin assistant uh, with the, with, whether that be draft stuff or, you know, paperwork, just anything that ba- basketball operations needed really. If, even if it meant going to get lunches too, right? Like it was just part of the, part of the, you know, what it took. So that was my first real exposure with equipment management. So. Luckily, with the move to Brooklyn, they were looking for a specific equipment manager, not a trainer, to do that. And I really just kind of stuck around all summer, even though my internship was over. And fortunately, they saw my hard work in the transition from New Jersey to Brooklyn, all the new gear that came in, how, you know, being tasked with making sure everybody got that from players to coaches to front office. So luckily, I was afforded that position come August. and. I've been there ever since. So just slowly kind of, you know, taking on more responsibility, constantly learning uh, to be better at my job and to serve our organization um, the best way possible. Yeah, that's, that's great. And thanks for taking us through that. I mean, obviously a very long journey for you, but a very fulfilling one uh, being able to be where you're at now and uh, kind of finding your niche and, and being willing to wear those multiple hats to just kind of see what you were most interested in. I think that's what a lot of people uh, sometimes don't necessarily want to do is uh, sacrifice some time to figure out what it is they want to do. And uh, that's, you know, really cool that you got that opportunity with, um, you know, the Nets in New Jersey at the time. But Joe, if you could real quick kind of take me through um, somewhat of a relevant topic, obviously uh, in the NBA world and sports in general, um, a little bit about uh, Kobe Bryant passing a few months ago. Uh, take me through kind of how that was felt on your end uh, as far as working within, uh, you know, the Brooklyn Nets organization and how it kind of resonated throughout the whole NBA. Well, yeah, Kobe was a, a generational type talent. Um, you know, I grew up watching him play. Um, I remember where I was when, when the news broke about his passing. We were getting ready to play against the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. That, that game really stood out as one in my career where, you know, I don't think the focus was on basketball that day. It was, you know, it was on uh, Kobe and his loved ones. And it was a really, um, really somber environment, very, very, very different than what we're used to day in and day out. Um, you know, what I really learned um, from that was that, you know, the effect that he had on so many players, like not even players that never even played against him, like, for for many of these guys who are just entering the league or have been barely in the league for a few years, like this was their version of Michael Jordan, like Generation X's Michael Jordan. So, you know, or uh, Generation Z rather, uh, they're, they're Michael Jordan. So, you know, I think that everyone tries to emulate his game. I think people watch his film so much and that, you know, they just look at his work ethic as something to model. And 
um, I like to think that every player like kind of takes a piece of that, um, that Mamba mentality into their game and just the, the world round, the world renowned effect that he's had on everybody is just incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like you mentioned, like the effect that it had beyond just the NBA and, and the world of basketball and, um, to the extent of friends and family members of mine who may be not even involved in sports too much, just dumbfounded by the news, uh, really just kind of spoke to his legacy and, uh, what type of impact he did have. Um, and I guess speaking on Kobe Bryant, um, I guess transitioning, what, what were maybe some of the cool moments that you've had with some, maybe some players or some experiences that you've had within the world of sports, uh, maybe specifically with the Brooklyn Nets? Well, the first one that stands out in my mind is, um, is being in the locker room after we beat the Toronto Raptors. I believe it was in the 2013-14 season, first round of the playoffs. Um, that was a very interesting year being that we acquired Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce very early on. Uh, we signed Andre Karolinko. It was just, uh, going into that year, it was a very different field than my first full-time season with the team. And, uh, we had high expectations. Jason Kidd was our brought in as our head coach and it was high expectations. We got out the gate really, really slow. Uh, but then we, after, um, after new year's, we were one of the hottest teams in the league. Um, so it was a very up and down season and, uh, just being in the locker room after that game, it was kind of like, you really got to enjoy the fruits of your labor. We came down to the last possession in game seven and Paul Pierce had a stop on Kyle Lowry and it was just, it was just electric. And then you have those, those legends in the locker room, just like who had been there before and like, they're like leading the way. It was just, it was just a really cool experience just to kind of see, you know, all the hard work and all the, the dedication that you put into a season, just kind of culminate into something special like that. So that was probably st stood in my mind as one of the first experiences that I've had, had that kind of feeling. And then secondly uh, was actually last season. It was a very, uh, very, very uh, different season in and of its own way. Um, we Nets weren't expected to be very good. You know, we were still a team on the rise rebuilding. And there was a point in that season uh, last year where we lost eight in a row. Uh, late November into December and we thought you know we had it we knew what kind of a team we were and the foundation that was there and we thought that there was a chance we could make the playoffs and then you lose eight in a row and you start to you know wonder like what are we doing wrong you know and you always go back to like what, what are your habits stick to your habits you know it, they'll get you through the tough times and we stuck to our habits and after we lost those eight in a row we went on to win seven in a row so we completely turned the season around Halfway through that season, we're on a long trip, and we lose the first two games of a West Coast of that West Coast trip, and we're in Sacramento, and we're down 26 going into the, the fourth quarter. Turn that game around, win by two, and that was a cool, really cool game to be a part of because um, you just kind of saw it change right before your eyes that hey, we're not giving up, and we took that into um, the end of the season where we had to go on the road and beat Milwaukee and Indiana in a back-to-back. -back. And I remember being in the locker room, kind of same feeling after that Indiana game when we clinched the playoff spot. And it was just, you know, we, we did it based off our culture, based off sticking to our habits. And, you know, it was, it was real special. It was very different from my early in my career when we had won the playoff series, but it was very different because, um, you know, 
I always like to add this anecdote when I talk to people that like Vegas does such a good job of predicting like how teams are going to finish. They're usually within like two or three games of being right. And they were off by about 12 games for us that year. It was just, it was really like, uh, we were like the true underdog of the NBA that year. And uh, Although we didn't win a playoff series, it was just such a cool team to be a part of. Like everyone in the locker room meshed. There wasn't any, any egos. It was just, everyone loved, got along with each other and it really felt like a family. And really that it just goes to show like what this management has done to turn this organization around. And, uh, in, in such a short time without draft picks. It's like truly remarkable. And it's probably a big, it's, it's the reason to where we are today now with the players that we have. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned the eight game losing streak followed by a seven game win streak. I think uh, basketball might be, if it's not the most, one of the most uh, affected sports based on momentum swings. Mm. And I think that, obviously comes from maybe the crowd, um, obviously players just clicking with one another, like you mentioned, uh, trusting uh, your habits, um, sticking to your habits, and you go eight games losing, seven games winning, you kind of start believing in yourself again, and then you mentioned the 26-point turnaround in the uh, game against Sacramento. Uh, those types of momentum swings can kind of come out of nowhere, and that's kind of the beauty in the sport is things can come out of nowhere, teams can come out of nowhere and just shock people um, if the, the five players and some of the bench players can really just put things together. So thanks for taking me through that. Um, I guess more on an equipment side of things, um, do you necessarily have a say in, in the jersey styles or the, the uniform styles for the team, or is that more of a uh, league office mandate uh, from higher-ups? Like how does, how does that work as far as the styles and colors and, and things like that? So the pr- primary focus of the jersey and design is driven by Nike. Uh, with input from our uh, marketing people and branding people at at the Nets. Uh, I'm fortunate enough where they do involve me in that process because I feel like I have a pretty good read on how players, you know, will view things and ultimately they're the ones wearing it. So, um, you know, I I am involved in the process and and I'll give feedback here or there, but ultimately I, you know, let the experts decide that. Um, So yeah, I do see some pretty cool uniform designs and pretty cool concepts, you know, that, um, make make the game really interesting so um, yeah uniforms are a big a big part of it so right and uh and all the fans love getting their hands on all those new uniforms that come out and all those new styles and i know the nba uh in recent maybe this past decade has really kind of pushed um you know some different unique styles really trying to step up the uh the game as far as the designs and the colors and that's you know attributed to nike and the input input from uh, all the professionals and everything so I guess my last question for you, um, were you around, I know you weren't around with the Nets, but the story kind of broke maybe four or five years ago that there was a potential that the Nets were going to rename the Swamp Dragons back, uh, back 90s, maybe 2000s. Can you touch base on that a little bit? Just kind of a, a fun story. Yeah. So, well, um, the Swamp Dragons, there was a, a point in the, in the long history of the Nets uh, not always so so good years or successful years, but uh, I think they were going. They may have been going through an ownership transition, but it was. I want to say it was like early '90s, um, and they were possibly looking at rebranding. And um, where our practice facility was, uh, you know, until we moved into our new one in 2015, was located in East Rutherford, very close to Giant Stadium. Um, you would, you know, driving around that area in the office park, you'd have really tall, high grass. 
um, it's a very swampy area, you know, the river's right there. So um, I think that whoever was trying to decide, decide, you know, how to rebrand it, um, you know, came upon this Swamp Dragons concept, very similar to um, Vancouver Grizzlies, a la Toronto Raptors, or mid-90s, very cartoonish type characters, but with vibrant colors. And um, it went to a vote, you know, I think the Board of Governors had to, you know, had to vote um, for the, the uniform change, the, 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 the team change, right? So every team has a, has a say in that. Um, so they took to a vote and 29 of 30 teams approved of the, of the, uh, the switch to Swamp Dragons, except for one team. And that one team was New Jersey. <laughs> they decided, uh, I guess, last minute that they didn't want to do it. So the, uh, the Swamp Dragons concept never came to be. It stuck with the Nets, the history and the tradition uh, dating back to the ABA days for the organization. So um, the colors kind of changed here and there. Um, the logo changed a little bit. It was more modernized in the late 90s into the 2000s. And then once again, uh, rebranded and changed um, for our move to Brooklyn. So, And I is there any chance that we can get a Swamp Dragons uniform at some point for one game, a one-off, just to, just to give the people what they want? Is that Ooh. is that in the works at all? I uh, can't comment on that. Oh, uh, no. But I know I did make a couple shirts for Brooke Lopez. Uh, we, we, you know just for, for gag gifts. We, uh, we had, Brooke and I, we were really, he was always the type of player who always wanted to see the, the, the logos or the new jerseys ahead of before everybody else. So uh, he would come in the equipment room. We'd always chat about that kind of stuff. We had a real interest in that. Um, so made a couple shirts for him. I'm pretty sure he still wears them every once in a while, even though he's on different teams. So, um, but yeah, hopefully we haven't seen the last of the Swamp Dragons, but um, we'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that'll that'll be exciting. I'm not tied to uh, any NBA fandom, so if that were to happen, I might have to uh, pledge my allegiance to the Brooklyn Swamp Dragons if that ended up happening. We'll see. But I know the uh, Brooklyn Nets on the court um, are obviously waiting for Kevin Durant to get healthy. Um, they have Kyrie Irving currently. Um, obviously, things are looking up for the organization as far as talent goes, so uh, I just want to thank you for being here and doing this and best of luck um, kind of moving forward, getting back into the swing of things once this pandemic does pass and um, best of luck to the, the team on the court, you know, uh, making, making some playoff pushes and long playoff runs here in the next few seasons. All right. All right. Thanks Justin for having me. All right. Thanks for being here, man. Have a good one. Thanks. Be sure to follow our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcast streaming services, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel to check out unique video elements for each interview.